Hello, is this thing on? Welcome back to Energy 101. We, I feel like I say this every time, we haven't recorded in a while. Yeah. Um, I actually just made a LinkedIn post like begging for (laughs) intros to people to come on our podcast because it's really hard just knowing who to talk to and really shape up um, content in a way that's helpful for newbies Mm -hmm. like us. So if y'all have any other suggestions after we get off. That would be amazing. Um, today, we have Tara. Oh, my God. I forgot to ask how you pronounce your last name. <laughs> Schneeberger. Okay. I would have completely yeah. butchered that. Schneeberger. She is the director of execution at Prolytics, and she worked in petrochemicals for most of her career previously. Um, and we have Will Welling, who is currently a technical consultant at Prolytics and previously a field engineer um, at a refinery. So this episode is going to be all about downstream, which I'm really, really excited about because being from Midland, I know like mostly only upstream exists in my world. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited to learn about what happens after it's out of the ground. It's a whole other world, my friends. So it's (laughs) going to be a great conversation and um, we're really going to see how it gets in the hands of the everyday consumer. So we'll see and talk through kind of the full life cycle. I love it. Okay. Do we want to start with introductions? Do you want to kind of tell sure. about your background, what you've done previously? Yep. So I'm a, I'm a chemical engineer by background. Uh, so I got my bachelor's at UT at Austin. And, um, and then I went and got my master's at the University of Oklahoma. So trying to bridge school relations, you know, <laughs> unsuccessfully. Uh, no, but it was it was a fantastic experience. And so outside of school, um, I started working at a petrochemical um, company and really got to see the whole breadth of petrochemicals. Saw several facilities, worked in several roles, um, commissioned units. Um, so it was really exciting. And then joined Prolytics about a year ago as the Director of Strategic Execution. And so now um, our team is responsible for executing and supporting owners and operators for their digital transformation efforts. Awesome. All right, Will. I'm Will Welling. I am currently a technical consultant at Prolytics, but I started at the University of Houston where I got my mechanical engineering degree. And like Tara, I also went to grad school. Uh, I graduated from the University of Texas at Arlington um, in 2018, and my first job was at a big refinery in Texas City, and there I was a field engineer where I would go out and do walk downs and system turnover, worked with operations to make sure, kind of commissioning-like, and but also I worked with databases and, and ways of managing projects on the owner's side. So it kind of got an influence of how the downstream sector was struggling with their own digital transformations. Um, since then, I've, I've done a few greenfield projects, worked for Qit for about a year, and then uh, came over to Prolytics to help them with uh, clients migrating data and working with that sort of thing. So Awesome. So y'all went, y'all both went from like really technical, chemical things. <laughs> I don't know how to say that to digital transformation. That's, right. That's really cool. What we found um, and what I, I'll brag on on Prolytics is that, you know, 
having an innate understanding of domain knowledge in order to roll out digital transformations is critical. Yeah. Um, and so folks who have been in the trenches, out in the field, who've put their hands on equipment, hands down, have a fundamental understanding um, and, and more palatable understanding of what it takes to rateably execute digital transformations yeah. in the industry. Yeah, and the problems they face, That's right. all of the things that come up. That's very true. I never, I don't, I don't know that I didn't understand what Prolytics did or anything, but hearing it that way, and y'all have mm -hmm. domain expertise of engineers helping out, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that. Especially when we firsthand have seen the, the challenges, right? So we've seen, um, you know, rolling out a connected worker with tablets as an example, which sounds great in theory, but when you have spotty Wi-Fi yeah. and yeah. you have to We're sync up tablets in a control room at the end of the shift, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's yeah. where the challenge is. And so that takes folks who have that innate domain knowledge to be able to help and partner um, with owners on making making that dream a reality. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. I have so many questions and I'm just going to like lay it all out and then <laughs> we can organize thoughts. Yeah, that <laughs> um, good. Okay. So first of all, very interesting on... There's upstream where the oil is obviously brought from the ground. I'm really interested in not so much like midstream, obviously pipeline, but how does downstream receive, like what does that process look like from receiving the product to making it what it is? And then two, I really love like the day in the life of a field engineer. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever talk to anyone who's worked at a refinery and what it's like and what you do. Um, so I think that's very, very interesting. So um, those are my thoughts on. Yeah, that's like questions. my first question. What is downstream? Yeah, let's start there. <laughs> let's start there. Yeah. So downstream is basically coming off of a pipeline um, and being received into a facility for manufacturing. So I'm familiar with petrochemicals, um, so I know we were talking earlier, um, but kind of the, the shale revolution in 2010 was truly revolutionary. It was revolutionary for upstream, especially compounded with fracking and horizontal drilling, um, but that was a tide that lifted all boats. And so when, I, I know I said this story earlier, but when I was an undergrad at UT, um, I remember several professors saying, we will never build another petrochemical facility in the U.S. The costs don't make sense. The natural resources, it doesn't make sense. Everything will be built overseas. Fast forward to me graduating out of OU and then starting in the industry. And then within a year, I'm commissioning a brand new ethylene unit. And so essentially, um, the stuff that refineries and the upstream guys don't want, petrochemical facilities love it. And so it's it really reinforces that nothing is wasted, um, that even the gases and the natural gas liquids or NGLs that may not be desirable for upstream on specific applications, downstream manufacturing facilities love it. Um, so specifically, it is ethane. We like ethane. Um, so ethane is essentially comes off of a pipeline. And then it is, there's several different units, um, but the ethane is transformed into a um, chemical called ethylene. And that is a 
beautiful molecule in the <laughs> sense that it is it's perfectly reactive. And when you add additional chemicals or co-monomers um, to ethylene, you get some really cool chemicals ranging from you know, polyethylene, high density, medium density, low density, all the way to specialty chemicals like synthetic motor fluid, um, the odorants that go in pipeline um, for detecting leaks. It smells like that sulfur. Mm -hmm. um, it goes into things like candles, sunscreens, lip gloss. Um, so the, the applications from a petrochemical side are truly endless. Um, and what's neat is that that's something that you can walk in a, you can walk in a grocery store and you see it all around you. So the challenge is, you know, can, can we as a society go a single day without using something that comes from oil? And right now, as it stands, the answer is no, it is absolutely yeah. integral to every stage of consumer goods. Um, so it's, it's been pretty impactful. So from a refinery perspective, um, what, what have you seen, Will? Um, well, I'm not a process guy, so I'm not going to pretend like I know as much as Tara does about any of that, but it's, I mean, it's largely the same idea, a little bit different. So, I mean, oil, when it comes in, has every hydrocarbon chain you can think of from the really light ends all the way to just incredible number of, of carbon chains. And so what my one engineer I worked with <clears throat> said it was, it's all just heat and pressure. I mean, every, every unit, I mean, whether it's, you know, the fluid catalytic cracking unit or, you know, the, the alky unit or whatever, all you're doing is applying heat and pressure and you're, you're basically separating these compounds into certain cuts. So a refinery, what you get out of that is mostly fuels. Um, we get from the very light ends, you get like kerosene and jet fuel and things like that. You get gasoline, of course, and you get diesel. And then at the coker and things like that, you get like asphalts and, and coke itself, like lots of really sticky, really heavy substances. Um, so yeah, I mean, we would take in oil from, from tankers, from pipelines. And one thing that I thought was really interesting was that these facilities are almost like, almost like an organism in that they're connected to other facilities. So like chocolate Bayou, which I think is a polyethylene, um, whatever they had pipelines in between them. In fact, one of our projects was we were commissioning them. I think they were supplying like excess hydrogen or mm -hmm. something like that to go into one of our, you know, um, whatever unit, like ultra cracker or something. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just like even though she was in the petrochemical side and I was refining, it's like it's all connected. Yeah. Um, Off gases it, of a refinery would be taken into a petrochemical facility and then processed. So there was there's a high level of integration to your point. Yeah. 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 So. um and to Tara's point, I mean, today's in today's day and age, uh, there's I mean, it's just vital for everything. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we I think America consumes like, what, 20 million barrels somehow over the last 50 years, we've always maintained about 17 to 20 million barrels a day of oil. That's for, crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. So it's it's quite a lot. You know, America's thirsty for oil and <laughs> um, and it's it takes a lot of work and a lot of jobs to make it all happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you take us through like your day as a field engineer working at a refinery? Like were you – so when you think of roughnecks, you know they're getting dirty, they're oil all over mm -hmm. them. What is a like field engineer at a 
refinery look like? Are you doing that like dirty work? I mean, I don't, I'm completely naive to what it's like in a refinery. So these yeah, might same. be really stupid like, questions. Is it really dangerous? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like working in a refinery. With gases and, you know. Well, yes. I mean, the short answer, yes. Start with the safety. That's that's always how you start off meetings anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous work. I think with the, like, it's it used to be more dangerous. Now we have, like, integrated control systems, computers that kind of, like, help run these processes. Still incredibly dangerous. In fact, the refinery I worked at, the one in Texas City, um, just recently had a fire, and there was a fatality and a couple injuries oh, within, the, like, no. literally the past two weeks. Wow. And then when I when I left, I remember I remember I always, you know, you check the news. There's always incidents going on mm -hmm. when I was at the Greenfield Project Construction. I would look and see and there was an incident, you know, where one of the oil tanks like the Manway busted or something. And there's always the potential. There's just so many points of failure in these like in these things places. that could go wrong. Absolutely. Tons. So it is. I mean. They're good paying jobs, but there's, you know, there's. There's a reason they're good paying. Yeah. High risk, high yeah, reward. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Um, my job was not, I wasn't as intimately involved with the process. I was more, I was brought on to kind of help with the small and medium and large cap projects, capital projects. And they were, so, you know, the margins at these facilities are all really tight. Like you're making like cents on the dollar of every barrel you buy. So these and like they're always trying to extract just as much as they can. And so they were trying to manage projects on their own more than having outside construction companies like KBR or, you know, wood or whatever help with these things, floor in this case. So I was brought in to kind of help manage and help run the databases for like managing manpower, managing rental equipment, managing um various other costs associated with these projects and then on the other side where i was actually a field engineer to your question finally getting to it i would uh i would go out at, with the pnids and other drawings and basically do like a final checkout with operations operations and a few other folks like the the project engineer over that specific project um so we'd go we'd check you know walk through the pnids sometimes bring isos things like that bring uh quality inspections guys with us do a final look around and basically sign it off and be like, you know, kick the tires. All right, turn this thing on. And when um, you turn it on, gas or whatever is flowing. I was never around when they when they really turned it on, when operations okay. were really commissioned it. So I didn't get, yeah, I didn't get my hands dirty quite But like is that, that what Tara happens? Did. Is that what happens? Like you yeah. basically turn it on and like pipe is just filled with. That's right. So <laughs> any time before a project, there's always extensive safety briefings that happen. So... There's typically something called a management of change or MOC process where you do extensive hazard evaluations. You're looking at all potential sources of risk and trying to mitigate as much as you can. And I'm sure it's similar to very, very upstream where in order to work on a piece of equipment or take a piece of equipment out of service and put something new in, you've got to isolate it safely. You can't have oil flowing through it. You can't have materials flowing through it. It needs to be isolated. So there's a practice called um, LTT or lock tag try. It's also, I've heard, lotto, lock out, tag out. And essentially that is from an operations and maintenance standpoint, um, your, your line of defense that you have locked out the section of equipment that you're going to be working on, whether it's a project or just maintenance. And then you lock it out and you test it. You make sure that energy is dissipated, that there's nothing in there. 
And then as you go through your management of change process, you're evaluating to make sure you've installed it correctly. You've had the right people work on it, inspect it to Will's point, and then operations will bless it, say it's good, and then it will be ready to be put back in service. So at that point, you remove the locking mechanisms, you make sure everything's buttoned up, and then you slowly introduce um, whatever material was in that piping back into it. It could be gas, it could be liquid, it could be product, solid, mm-hmm. um, but you introduce that back safely into the process. I personally, I, I always felt pretty safe in a petrochemical facility. Um, we, we, while we do work with volatile chemicals, there are so many safeguards in place, making sure to protect folks um, that to me, driving to and from work in Houston traffic, <laughs> I felt to be more risky yeah. than actually yeah. working in the manufacturing facility. So, I mean, we're, we're geared up in the same way that um, upstream is. We've got our hard hat, we've got our steel toe boots, mm-hmm. our fire retardant clothing. So we're suited up. It's hot in the summer, but recognizing it comes from a good place that it's actually protecting us. So there's a lot to Will's point that goes in the day-to-day run and maintain. So from monitoring your manpower allocation to what work orders are out for the day, meaning what's the maintenance on on the plate. Um, If there's an unplanned unit shutdown, then it's all hands on deck, right? So operations, maintenance engineers are coming together to put together a plan and make sure that they safely bring that unit back up. So there's always, um, there's always something going on. It's, I would not say it's like your classic mud and dirt. dirt. It's, yeah. it's, I, I didn't experience Slinging chains. Yeah. I, it was actually very clean facilities. Um, so a lot of the facilities um, that I worked at go through a pretty rigorous safety certification through OSHA. And part of that is cleanliness and your mm-hmm. backlog on um, any findings or compliance items and making sure that those are, are good. So um, there's quite a bit of rigor um, that goes into even installing a little valve, the amount of engineering paperwork and approvals, um, just to make sure that all considerations have been taken into place. So it's it's one of the most highly regulated and governed um, facets of our business to make sure that we don't see incidents um, on the news and that we send people home the same way that they yeah. came in, that they come yeah. in safely. So. There's always um, there's always that in our minds. Yeah. Um, okay. So, whenever do y'all receive like a full barrel of oil, and then it goes into different segments, um, or is it like midstream does something with it, and then y'all get it in a already different form? I don't even know if this, like, again, yeah. does this question Good make questions. sense? Okay. <laughs> so we, we take a lot um, of natural gas liquids and we take some streams from refineries. And basically, they're, they're just big towers and they just separate materials. So they, um, there's a lot of chemistry behind it, recognizing boiling points of the various um, hydrocarbon components. And so the lighter components will volatize uh, to the top of a a fractionation tower and that goes into a separate piece of pipe and you go through and there's several takeoffs of a tower the heavy stuff tends to stay on the bottom because it's heavier right and so those different streams go to different end places we will take some aspects of it um, working in petrochemicals 
refineries will take some from the upstream guys, um, but everything has a purpose. So we are not ever receiving like, here's your barrel of oil. <laughs> Good luck. It is, it is in a pipeline form and it is, it is a very tight spec most times of whether that's an ethane, a butane, a propane. Um, it's, it's a, we have spike specs on everything. And, um, and so that's a tight spec. We receive that certain, um, feedstock. And then from there, that's when all the magic happens downstream with catalysts and the reactions to make, um, the polyethylene and specialty chemicals. Interesting. That's awesome. Um, when you were first talking and describing what you did, I had a picture of like a mad scientist, just like with <laughs> tubes and yeah. everything, <laughs> like just the, the reactions. Um, I mean, you always have like these like typical thoughts when you think of a, like anything chemistry wise. So is it like that? Like, do you, are, are you testing different things before you create the product or I don't, no, know how to fin- I don't know how to finish that question. Yeah, yeah like, does it look question. like a full on like chemistry lab and like like is there a lab? Absolutely. Okay. So most, if not all, manufacturing and petrochemical companies have a research and development section. Okay. They work very closely with um, manufacturing facilities. A lot of companies have pilot plants, which are basically just miniature versions of the larger operating units. And that's where you see more of your testing of new catalysts, new additives, um, new plastics and new chemicals before they scale it to the larger units. Um, they really need to see what's the, what's the feedback from consumers, what's the feedback from customers. And then getting that feedback, they'll go into the lab, do a lot of tests on catalysis, on um, just reaction chemistry, and then from there, they'll go to the pilot plant, see how it reacts, see how the equipment performs. Does anything foul? Does exchangers or filters foul up with this tweak of the formula? And if everything looks good, then they start to scale that into the larger operating units. And then um, there's, you know, depending on the, the customer need, if they're, they may like it, they may not. Um, but there's all sorts of tests. I don't know if y'all remember, there was several years ago, there was, um, it was really for like Doritos bags and like, they, they got really loud. Did y'all notice that? They yeah, were like, I remember that. they were like crazy crunchy. <laughs> like when you tried to open them, they were really loud. And it was because one of the larger like bag manufacturers was testing and it's like, Hey, this is, you know, post-consumer recycled percentage. Let's test it out. And they thought, you know, this this has the, it's post-consumer. This is good. We're recycling, which it, that's great. Mm-hmm. But the feedback from consumers was, it is so loud. You know, do I need to put earplugs in to wow. eat a bag of chips? And then it's like back to the drawing board, right? So yeah. we get the feedback, that continuous improvement feedback loop. And so went back to a different formulation based off of the feedback from the client. So there, there's a handful of examples where you're like, you see something roll out. And then it, it either becomes kind of a, a statement and longstanding, or you see it cycle back to the lab to, to try That's again. wild. I, I don't feel like you think about like in the supply chain of 
Doritos or Cheetos. Like yeah. the actual <laughs> bag it comes in. So is that who the customer is for like petrochemicals? They are supplying manufacturers of different products. So your Procter's and Gamble's, your Clorox, they will take petrochemicals um, and that's upstream because it takes, you know, the package to hold it in. Um, it takes, so I would say the breadth of consumer goods is all over the place. Um, so nothing is left untouched from a, not only the material inside the packaging, but the packaging as well um, has some component of petrochemicals included in it. Yep. That's crazy. It's probably even more than I thought. Like I already knew, mm -hmm. like they're in everything, but to really think about every single thing you touch from, like you were saying, the layers of inside, what were you saying? Of yeah, the uh, Cheetos bag. Yeah, that's wild. Get a, get a zoom in for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, this as an example, um, you know, the Cheetos, and this is like any snack bag, you know, tortilla chips, whatever. Um, but, you know, there's multiple layers of petrochemicals in these. Um, and this is plastic. Um, and so it'll start out in this kind of granular form called these pellets. And these pellets are shipped off in rail cars or super sacks, depending on the client. And then they will melt it down. And then there's a lamination process for this. So there's multiple layers. Um, so there's an outer layer, which typically has kind of like the logo. Um, then there's a sealant layer in there. There's a barrier layer that keeps out moisture, UV, because mm, UV breaks yeah. down. So there, you know, there can be um, several layers to, to something that's so simple as just a bag. And it's um, crazy to think like there's, I mean, bags of Cheetos, like millions of them. And they're like, I don't know, the whole process is just mind blowing to me over here. Right. What's interesting too, from a sustainability perspective is it's, it's amazing the engineering that goes into the number of layers. It also makes recycling very challenging um, because, because there's so many different layers and so many different properties mm -hmm. of the plastic it requires um, typically chemical recycling um, is better utilized for some of these more complex plastics as compared um, to traditional uh, mechanical recycling. So there, you know, even on the on the back end from a sustainability perspective, there's all sorts of nuances that goes into how we sustainably manage these materials. So it's um it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, I can go through each of these if you want. Yeah, let's do it. I don't it. know if it's a natural segue. But yes, yes, let's do it. So um, the next one on the docket, I've got these sugar packets here. Um, so you may think, oh, I just rip it open. I put it in my coffee and I never think about, I think about it again. Um, but there's actually a coating on the inside. Um, it's typically wax, which can be um, petrochemical based. And that's what keeps the sugar packet, you know, it actually keeps it, the granular um, sugar, it, you know, if anybody's picked up a sugar packet that's been wet, you know, it starts to clump. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that, right? Yeah. Um, so this is an example of something so small that has big impacts on the end consumer. Um, Starbucks, not my sponsor, but if you want to sponsor, <laughs> I will gladly sponsor. Um, but, you know, it's that's a classic ex example of um, – 
there is a plastic lining, you know, in addition to the lid, but there's a plastic lining in the inside. So have y'all remember in the early days of like the paper straws mm-hmm. where you're like enjoying a mojito and then the straw disintegrates in, in your, your mouth. mouth. Mm-hmm. They've come a <laughs> long way. Yeah. Paper. You're getting yeah. your fiber in addition to your mojito. Um, you know, they've come a long way since then with, you know, bamboo. I've seen all sorts of like much better materials that are sustainable. Um, that's trying to mimic the properties of like a classic paper or a classic plastic straw. But for a Starbucks, it's um, there's a plastic lining in here so it doesn't have that same effect of disintegrating and then having hot coffee or hot beverage everywhere. Um, so that's that's typically made. You can either um, coat it or you can laminate it um, to the cardboard, similar to what they do for um, some of those chip bags. Now, I also have a candle here. I'm a big candle fan. My husband will admit that there's always a candle or two. Um, But candles is actually a, um, it actually comes from petrochemicals. Now there's the soy candles um, that there's, there's different derivative sources. um, But they, a lot of it is, um, is petrochemicals. So you'll take ethylene, you'll run it over a catalyst and it'll make a whole variety of um, chemicals. And one of them is, can be a heavy wax. Yeah. And so uh, the wax will um, load it in rail cars, big rail cars full of wax, and they're actually heated. Are the they like car- pellets? No, it is. It's melted wax. It's like a big old rail car candle. Wow. Oh, my God. You just got to throw a wick in it. But, um, <laughs> Wait, but really it's, cool. it's a heated rail car, so it actually stays in liquid form. Okay. And then um, when it gets to um, the consumer or the client, they'll go and – They'll add perfumes and scents to it. They'll add any colors. They want to get super artisanal. They'll add like, you know, the dried flowers and like yeah. all the fancy stuff into it that I like. Um, <laughs> so that's that's an example of that you would never even think of, even from like a candle, you know, yeah. that, that that comes from the gas from, sh- you know, from fracking, from shale. Mm-hmm. So um, it's pretty crazy. That is wild. It really is. Yeah. Now my last one, especially gotta- hold on, especially <laughs> since you say it comes from fracking, like right for everyone who hates fracking, just look at your candle. You're That's using right. it. There you <laughs> look go. at your Bath and Body Works candle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the last one I've got here, I've got a Tesla, um, and so this this isn't meant to you know tease, poke, or prod. It's it's the reality that even with electric vehicles, mm-hmm. there's a significant component that comes from oil whether that's the synthetic materials of the seats or in some of the um, plastic components interior, whether it's the high density polyethylene on some of the body of the vehicle, like the bumper. Um, The gas tank is a big one, especially for, you know, internal combustion engines. Um, You get better gas mileage when you have plastic um, fuel tanks. And those are done by um, rotational molding or roto molding. And it's basically melting um, some of these plastic pellets, high density, melting it into kind of a um, molten form and then putting it into a mold and letting it harden. And it reduces corrosion. um, It reduces any drag and it's more economical from a miles per gallon than what you would see from a steel tank. So that's just a great example there. Tires is another example 
that is big on the refinery side with some of the tar and the asphalt, but there's also petrochemicals that go into it as well um, to help with the adhesion and some of the long-lasting um, tire characteristics to kind of the tread and things like that. Um, and then there is also, this was news to me um, until just a couple years ago, but there's also, there's a synthetic motor um, fluid that is in the body of the car. And it's actually in the gearbox differential. It contains a synthetic oil to ensure that you've got good transmission. Wow. So there's actually oil that runs in it. You don't have to get an oil change because it's an electric vehicle. Right. But there's it, it's a lubrication component to right. make sure mm -hmm. that everything is greased and running well. So mm -hmm. there's something that you would never even expect. Yeah. yeah. So. And then I've got, let's see, got a piece of paper, which you would think, oh, you just stamp on these, you know, the red and the and the blue lines, right? But there, there's actually um, chemicals needed to help with the color of the paper, to help with the adhesion of the inks and the dyes, um, the bleaching process. So even something fundamental as, you know, I know school's out for the summer, but you know, it'll be back in session before you know it and buying something as simple as that has, has ramifications. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then a milk jug. This is a um, classic example of polyethylene and this is manufactured through blow molding. So blow molding is basically, it's that molten plastic and you blow it into a mold and you do a little last burst of air, kind of fit the mold and then you run cold water or cold air over it and it solidifies immediately. So think about not only from a, um, from a consumer perspective, just the weight of it, um, but even transporting these to your HEBs, your mm. Walmarts, your Kroger's, your your um, grocery stores, what the impacts that has for trucks and their miles per gallon and their fuel efficiency, right? Um, what's really neat about all these different types of plastic is that as as the pro the chemical process completes, you can add different additives to it, and it gives it different properties. So. You know, this is kind of opaque. It's not totally transparent, right? So there's an additive added at the end part of the process to give it the characteristics. The same thing can be said for shiny plastic, like coat hangers, for example. Those are given an additive to give it that shiny, high gloss look. Um, and so the same thing can be applied for, there will be additives for UV blockers to help prevent degradation from the sunlight for some outdoor equipment um, and sports like kayaks or mm -hmm. basketball. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of applications and everything is engineered to a, you know, it's, it's the science of engineering. Every, everything has a purpose, whether it's the lining in your Starbucks, whether it's the color of a milk jug, everything is done, um, is done and thought of and optimized and I can say that for refinery and for petrochemicals, everything is done for a reason um, in order to, to make sure that we're, you know, from a safety and compliance perspective and from a consumer um, goods perspective, everything is just meticulously thought of to make sure that kind of hitting on all cylinders. So, yeah, I want to quickly go back to when you were talking about the shale revolution and it really... Uh, making an impact for downstream as well. 
Um, and you said you were on a refinery facility, something. <laughs> so I was on a petrochemical facility, um, and I I was still a, a newer engineer, just a couple years out of school. And um, there was an opportunity. They were, they were commissioning a brand new ethylene unit. An ethylene unit, it's a glorified oven. There's a lot of engineering that goes into it, but for all intents and purposes, you're taking that ethane that's a gas or a byproduct that upstream guys don't want, the refiners don't want. They take it and they heat it up to very hot temperatures and they break it down and um, to its most core monomer. And then they basically go through with a series of compressors and then those larger fractionation towers and they make ethylene. And ethylene is really, that's the molecule that makes it happen. Um, so ethylene is, is, can be reacted with the catalysts um, that go and make all of this. But talk about an opportunity to be on a, on a project where you're commissioning and they're massive. I mean, you can see them from the road, you know, they're massive. And, you know, I knew that unit like the back of my hand because I went through all those stairs <laughs> and you've got your punch list. You know, you're an engineer and you've got your clipboard and you've got your your engineering documents. And I'm tracing lines to make sure that it matches, you know, the isometric drawings. I'm making sure that, you know, um, maintenance is, is working. Um, the project crews are working on what was prioritized for the day. Um, and so you're going into going into the structure to inspect it, to make sure everything was installed correctly, going into vessels, you know, I'm like a two, three year engineer and I've got my hard hat on and, you know, and that's, that's how you, um, you know, I was doe eyed, bushy tailed, but you know, it's, yeah. but it's so yeah. exciting, you know, because that's how you cut your teeth and yeah. you have such an appreciation and a respect for all the engineering, both upstream to get it to that point, all the design engineering from, EPCs um, and those those guys who were designing the equipment to actually getting it installed, and then being one of the um, the few folks who you know working with operations inside the control room, and everything's ready to go, everything checked out, green lights ready, and being able to say, let's start introducing feed, you know, and. And seeing everything kind of light up, like you're introducing feed for the first time in a brand new unit, cool. you know, it's, it's a cool milestone and something that we never thought would be possible in the U.S. if it wasn't for shale. Um, so, you know, there's plenty of, of great partnerships, you know, that happen in the Middle East and, and in Asia, but there is something about having new manufacturing facilities being built from the ground up in the U.S., whether it's in the Golden Triangle, whether it's off the Gulf Coast. Um, and even the NGL units that have popped up around Mont Bellevue, um, it's been fantastic to see just all the downstream components that come from shale, that come from the horizontal drilling. Um, so it's been really cool. Yeah. That was going to be my question is what caused it to the, how did the shale revolution lead to like us having a facility in the U.S. and it was because of the production. That's correct. Right. So because we were able to access more oil in creative ways, right, with horizontal drilling, oil is, if it's a great well, it'll be majority oil. But nine out of 10 times, there's always going to be some gas with it. It's not 100% oil. 
So the question was, well, what do we do with the gas that we're extracting with the oil? And one option is just you flare it, which mm -hmm. to me is wasteful. You know, if there's an opportunity to utilize it, let's do it. And so that's when we really started seeing a lot of um, ethylene units and then polyethylene units and natural gas liquids or NGL fractionators be built is to really process um, those lighter ends and make it usable for downstream facilities to be able to go into all of this. Do you know why a company would choose to flare over sending it downstream? Like, is there any type of gas that has to be flared? I, I don't know. Um, short answer, I don't know. I think in general, the flare is a safety system. Okay. So the flare, it should be used for safety. And so if there's a unit upset or if there's um, any continuous burning of, of typically a flare will go with nitrogen and, um, and methane in a flare, but it's, it's used as safety. Um, so in general, if they're flaring, it's typically intermittent because there's not the facility there to process the gases. They don't have that available. Um, or it's just, it was the need at the time. Um, but yeah, in general there, you try to minimize flaring as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any questions? Um, I think that's it for me. Where are we going? Do y'all have anything fire? else you want to kind of talk about or anything that you didn't really get to explain? I think oh. I'm good on my end. I think a lot, you know, I, I do get a lot of feedback on where's all this stuff going. Yeah. Like we're, we, we're building new facilities um, and we're creating more of these consumer goods. Where are they going? And what we're seeing is, is there's a rise of middle class globally whether that's in um, Asia, it's predominantly in Asia, um, but there's also localized of, of folks coming into the middle class and, um, and seeing what consumer get goods are available and wanting to have that opportunity. So I heard a great analogy is, um, you know, somebody coming into the middle class who would use these materials is going from using a bar of soap to a bottle of shampoo. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really see that incremental demand um, on some of these consumer goods, whether it's from petrochemicals or from um, renewables, I think consumer goods and these end products are um, are really paramount, and they're kind of a they're a staple to society. Yeah, yeah, and and you've said you said this multiple times. Um, it's just cheaper to use petrochemicals than it is to use other type of things. It's cost efficient. Right. Um, and that's a big thing for us is educating people on, hey, we want the world to be able to access cheap and reliable energy. Right. And you can't do that right now without oil. Right. And gas. I actually have some really good stats for you based off of that convo. Oh. Um, so um, an example of that is like for food wrappings, um, that 50 percent of food is wasted annually. And a third of that is because of appearance. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with petrochemicals? What does that have to do with oil? And the reality is that there's a preservation factor with mm -hmm. plastics um, that, as an example, a cucumber, um, it's typically lasts freshness five days unwrapped, but 14 days in plastic. Mm -hmm. um, red meat, vacuum packed, that will, um, that's sealed packaging, preventing oxidation that has a shelf life. 
of six days compared to three days. So it basically doubles I've it. I've never thought about that. Like I've never yeah. even realized. And bread is is the most infamous on, you know, preservation of freshness. Um, you can triple or quadruple the shelf life of bread wow. by using plastic packaging. And so wow. what that means is it's less waste. Right. And it's able to, for a supply chain and transportation, we can transport food to broader locations, geographic locations. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the Starbucks cup or the candle. It's, yeah. it's, it comes down to food preservation yeah. and um, not wasting um, as much, especially like going to landfills. 50% of food wasted goes into landfills. So because of Dang. a third of it is because of appearance, which is crazy to me. Yeah, that is crazy. That's wild. I really have never thought about that. That's, yeah, very interesting. It's It's hard to understand how people can demonize it whenever you like really sit and think right yeah absolutely there's definitely a place and a time um, i'm all for innovation so if there's innovative ways to produce plastic sustainably because yeah, i'm like what what is what's the alternative right so Correct. you know there i i'm excited to see all the renewables come up from you know from a plastic perspective um, but the price point is challenging. Mm -hmm. That's it. Right now right. it's not it's not cost efficient for anyone except, you know, probably top. Right. Yeah, the upper class. Upper class, yeah. Right. There we go. <laughs> so as soon as, as we see it, um, as we see some scalability and advances within technology, um, I'm all for more innovative ways to continue to see development and consumer goods. Um, but in the interim, we're going to continue to to do what's um, what's helps our clients at the end of the day with their consumer goods and making sure that folks are satisfied. Yep. yep. And I think the majority of the oil and gas industry would agree with you that renewables isn't a bad thing. We're all really excited. And I think that um, there's a time and place for it. And you can't do it right now without oil and gas. Just, right. Yeah, There's also an possible. incredible amount of plastic that goes into those um, like wind turbines and offshore wind turbines. And, <laughs> right. and solar panels. Solar panels. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm all for blended. It mm -hmm. should not be yes. one at the sake of another. It should be blended based off of a case by case scenario and, and let the consumers vote. Right. right. Let's see what makes sense and what place um, we, we have. Um, for those specifics, but you've got a cool little sign out there that says evolve or die. Yeah. <laughs> That's a perfect example of continuing to innovate yep. and, and find the, the best solution. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's really what Digital Wildcatters is all about and helping foster the community to do that. Right. Um, yeah. And we like to say energy addition instead of energy transition because it's an addition mm -hmm. where consumers are just consuming more and more. Right. energy as technology grows the use grows so exactly yeah um do you have do you want to do your questions yeah we're gonna do rapid fire really quickly oh wow cool. <laughs> all right number one <laughs> I <wasn't thinking. laughs> um what's the number one misconception about the energy industry hmm that's wow that's a good one I've talked too much, Will. It's on you. You, you get this rapid fire. <laughs> Misconception. Um, well, kind of segueing off what we were just talking about, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people don't appreciate just the number of jobs and scale of the industry. I don't think people, I think people who don't 
live in the Gulf Coast area realize just how valuable it is to the, the people down here, right. um, whether it's upstream or downstream. I don't think people realize that welders can go out and make six figures, that pipe fitters and those guys working turnarounds can make, you know, a year's salary in, in one quarter. Um, I don't think people appreciate how hard they work. Um, and just, you know, the, the, the kind of toll that they take on their bodies and that, that kind of thing. I think people also don't appreciate the fact that plastic and petrochemicals is in everything, literally everything. Our clothes. Yeah. Yes. So, everything. Our makeup. Yep. Yep. Makeup. Everything. Um, I love that you said that. And being from Midland, I always talk about the opportunity there to make six figures right out of high school. Like that's insane. And it's amazing. Um, it's one of the reasons that I love Midland so much is because if you work hard, you'll get rewarded. Right. And I think that's really cool. And I don't think people realize how hard it is and not only how hard it is on the person working, but their family, they pay that price. They don't get to see them. They're right. always called mm -hmm. out on birthdays, holidays. It doesn't matter. Yep. And it's actually what led, I think, my dad was um, an engineer. He worked for Halliburton for 40 years. His work ethic, I mean, insane. And then I watched my husband. He was actually a roughneck, worked his way up on the rig. And it in turn made me be very um, independent at home. Um, I have three kids. I had three kids when very little when he was out there. Mm -hmm. And I had to do everything on my own. And it's not something that I was like, hey, you're home from work. Help me do this. Like, no, he's tired and it does take a toll on their body. Um, so I'm glad you said that. I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever said that. And mm -mm. that's one of my favorite tangents to go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, number two is why we should care. So like me, someone that came from outside of the industry, didn't know anything about it. Why is it important to educate people that don't know anything about it? Are we switching back and forth or is this? Um, or you can I both can, answer. We can yeah. both answer. Sure. So why is it so important? Yeah, like why why it's important to educate people on why they should care, essentially. I think knowledge is power. I right. think it's very easy to um, to see volatile things in the news, and I think it's another thing to actually fundamentally understand mm -hmm. what's the intent. The intent is good. Um, you know, there's We care about the environment, right? Um, we care about each other. Um, it's a very close community. I would say I, I keep in touch with folks that I've, worked with over the years and um it's it's fantastic that you know we, to build those connections networks um you really are a team um especially you know on shift work um mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of the folks that i worked with been on the same shift for decades you know longer than they've been married longer than they've had families they've known the folks that they've worked with on that shift and that builds a camaraderie and that builds strong rapport um, so there, there's a lot of strong teamwork and, mm -hmm. and building there. Yeah. Anything else, Will? Um, so the question was, why is it important to educate people on the, yeah. the importance? Um, yeah, the, I just think that, I mean, in modern life, people just take everything for granted. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's, it's just people aren't aware of, of how much it takes. Like it, I'm still shocked when I look and see even when even gas is four dollars a gallon. I'm like, just the the amount of work and like the 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 distance that hydrocarbon traveled out of the rock 
like all the way across <laughs> Texas or out of the Gulf of Mexico or wherever. And then the processes it went through and like all the design and all the, like everything it went through and it's still only $3 a gallon. Like that's a miracle. Yeah. That's a miracle. That is insane. How many jobs it employs. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's just, it's just appreciation. I think people just need to realize like, yes, there are consequences to burning oil and gas, but like what, what it, what it gives you and what it takes to get there. Right. So. Yeah. I like that answer. This is our favorite one and you guys both have to answer <laughs> Oh, what's your most embarrassing story in your career? Oh, oh that was easy. <laughs> well, <they're> easy. <laughs> you go first then. Uh, okay, well, I won't tell. <laughs> no, he's like, most embarrassing. embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't, can't dog myself too bad. <laughs> I've definitely, I've shown up to the control room on one. So, you know, you go out, you go to the control room, tell operations what you're about to do, and then they sign off on it and you go do your thing. I've shown up to the control room without like my steel-toed boots. I was wearing my tennis shoes without like my without my hard hat, without my glasses. I'm just like, and you know, these are different different occasions, but like I'm I'm can be forgetful. So they're just like, what are you doing? Where's your hard hat? <laughs> right. Um that safety kind of basics. So you got you got oh, kicked yeah. out. Yeah, they're, they're just like, like hey, leave. <laughs> go, you know, go back and get your, your yeah. steel-toed boots or whatever. Yeah. So that's funny. Mine is when I was commissioning um, a new unit, um, I had a great relationship with with the operators and maintenance folks who were helping support that. And, um, you know, you're wearing your hard hat and sometimes we kind of play pranks on each other and stick like a post-it note on the back or whatever. Well, I was walking around like all day. One of um, one of the operators put a pink ribbon like a streamer on the back of my hard hat. You had no idea. And I had no idea. And so I'm walking around all day and folks are kind of turning and look at me and I, you know, the wind was gone and my, you know, my pink streamer is kind of flowing, you know, and they're kind of turning and looking and I'm like, man, am I, you know, am I, am I out of compliance or something, you know? And so at the end of the day, I, I take off my hard hat and I see this pink streamer and, um, and so the joke was, you know, Hey, you got tagged, you got your, you know, the pink streamer. And what's funny is I still have my hard hat. Um, I still have that hard hat and I kept that pink streamer on there. And so every time, every time somebody asks like, what's up with the pink streamer? And I'm like, it's a long story, but just go with, it's now a windsock and now it tells me the direction of the wind. So it's for safety purposes now, but it's, um. And that just goes to show that it's a community of folks. Yeah. You know, it's a family. Folks look out for each other. They know their kids, their family's kids, you know. And so it, it really is a tight network of, of folks building those memories together. I love that. I love that, too. That's that's awesome. I love that you still have it. Yeah. Um, okay. This episode was really, really fun. It made me honestly want to go to school for chemical engineering. <laughs> At the very least, I want to go um, on a field trip. <laughs> yeah, so sure. I – really quick. I lived in uh, Deer Park and, like, where all the plants are and yep. stuff, and we would go on field trips to the plants. Oh. Like, we went to Lubrizol mm -hmm. on a field trip there. Yeah. Was yeah, it cool? in elementary school. Yeah, it was from what I can remember. It was super <laughs> cool, but, like, yeah. that's just crazy. You live over there and, like, your field trips are – you're going to the plants. Right. Yeah, it was super cool. see it in person. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that is really cool. 
We never did that on like a drilling rig and <laughs> no, like, yeah, okay. could yeah. you imagine a bunch of like six year olds on a drilling yeah. rig? Someone would we be did, getting fired. We did get to go to the the museum and do like a lock in oh, that's cool. thing overnight. Yeah. Anyway, um so where can people find y'all if they want to learn more? Um y'all talked a lot about prolytics in the beginning. Um where can people find you? So we're on social media. We're on LinkedIn. And we um, are also go to prolytics.com. And um, folks can reach out to us there. But we're happy to help support digital transformation and help owners and operators with their roadmaps. Awesome. Anything else? I think that's That's it. All right. That's it. Um, thanks, everyone. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye.